Welcome to the Beyond Mom Podcast, the podcast for moms seeking connection to self while navigating the journey of motherhood. Get inspired with our practical tools, soulful conversations, and honest stories told by other women like you. From entrepreneurship to healthy living to style, Beyond Mom will spark you to live the thriving life you deserve. And now, join our host, Brandy Zinn, as she takes you Beyond Mom. Hi, everybody. This is Randy Zinn on the On Air with Beyond Mom podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with me today and taking your precious time to tune in and hear stories that will inspire you and motivate you for the next moves in your life as a busy, creative, forward-moving mom. Um, Today's conversation is one that I'm really, really intrigued to have, and I think that we're going to get so much here um, based on just how profoundly interesting my interviewee is today. Um, Her name is Samantha Watson, but she goes by Sam. Sam Watson began her 17-year career as a health advocate at age 21 when she was diagnosed with cancer, which is kind of hard to even imagine. Um... She is the founder and CEO of the SAM Fund for Young Adult Survivors of Cancer, which is a Boston-based nonprofit organization uniquely designed to support young adults in their financial recovery from cancer treatment. What I think is so fascinating about this is that we just – this is not a part of things that we think about. So Sam, um, having personally gone through this, uh, has become so motivated to create this very, very important um, discussion and organization. And of course, she's here on the On Air with Beyond Mom podcast because she too is a mom. So, I mean, there's so many things that I, I am looking at here on her bio, but I'm actually just interested in just saying hello to Sam and introducing her to our listeners. So hi, Sam. (laughs) Hi, Randy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You just have so much to share. And I could go through this bio and talk about all the things that not only you've been through, but created. And I think, honestly, one of one of the things that I love most about human beings is when they go through something really horrendous and super challenging and find inspiration and find something worth sharing. And I actually consider myself one of those people from a totally different angle, but I can really relate to the uh, profound nature of that sort of sharing. So I just know that you are going to have so much to share with our listeners today. Um, So I'm just going to dive in. So Sam, tell us about the SAM Fund and like what this motivation is and what is the mission and what do you want us to know? So thanks so much for the opportunity to share my story. You know, I think that having had cancer at the age that I did gives me a very unique perspective on things, but really going through anything in your life, especially if it's at a stage where developmentally you're supposed to be doing something specific. You know, in my case, I was supposed to be graduating college and starting my first job, but whether you're younger or older, when that sort of trajectory gets disrupted, you really sort of have to forge your own path. And I think that if there's any inspiration that can be drawn from my story, it's that no matter what you've gone through, you can figure out a new way forward, illness or otherwise. And I think we all sort of have that in common. 
So I was getting ready to graduate from college and I was diagnosed with bone cancer, turned my world totally upside down. My mom actually has been a nurse in the cancer world for her entire career. So ironically, I had actually, I grew up in New York City and so I had gone to Sloan Kettering after school to wait for her, you know, when I was a kid. And so I wasn't unfamiliar with that hospital, but I had no idea what went on there. And then all of a sudden I was a patient. And so I had to leave school for, it ended up being actually two semesters, went through chemo and surgeries and had an amazing, amazing network around me the whole time. My friends came down from Boston, my friends who were still in New York that I had grown up with, my family, my school, everybody stepped up huge. And then when I was finished with treatment, everybody sort of assumed that I would be fine, you know, and I think what you said earlier really hit it right on the head. Most people have no idea what the aftermath of cancer is like. One of the biggest challenges that I was really, really fortunate to not have to struggle with all that much was the financial part of it. Cancer is overwhelmingly expensive. And the example that I always like to share is that when I went through, so I was diagnosed with bone cancer and then a year later was diagnosed with an early form of leukemia. And in the time after I had my bone marrow transplant, I got a bill from from our hospital for, I think it was about $289,000. And my mom and I looked at that and almost laughed, except that it actually wasn't really funny, but we could laugh at it because we knew that there was no way, there was no way that that was going to happen. And my mom, because she's an oncology nurse, took our insurance company to task for two years. She had the time, she had left her job, she had the knowledge because of what she did professionally. And she kept appealing and appealing And in the end, they had to cover it. And so I wasn't left with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. But in my work with the SAM fund, which I'll tell you more about, I've met so many people who didn't have those supports in place, who didn't have friends and family championing them throughout their treatment, didn't have a parent or anyone else in their world that could challenge their insurance company for that, you know, to that extent. And without those supports in place, We've seen so many people who are facing bankruptcy before they're even 25. You know, so, one rent check away from being evicted. So crazy. Wow. And so what the, and so what the SAM fund does is it raises money to offer assistance to young people going through cancer so that they're not financially hugely set back. I'm assuming that's the main point. Yes. So, you know, the SAM fund really in so many ways is about paying it forward Mm. because if you think about the number of times throughout the day that we say thank you to somebody, you know, we say thank you if we go buy a coffee, we say thank you if we get in the cab, we say thank you for someone who holds the door. For me, when I was done with all of my years of treatment and the surgeries and the bone marrow transplant and the years and years of chemo and all of the other terrible stuff that happened, I couldn't say thank you in any way that was meaningful enough for me to the people who very literally saved my life. I couldn't say what I would say. And so I started the SAM fund as sort of my way of showing my gratitude and paying it forward because what I knew from my own story was that with support and with community, you can go forward in a really good way. And without those things, you know, the challenges look very different. And so our biggest program is a grants program. We raise money to help young adults after they finish treatment to sort of get back on their feet, to pay down their medical debt, to pay their rent, to pay really for anything, groceries, gym memberships, um, insurance premiums, also for people who are looking to start a family. Infertility is one of the 
biggest challenges, most common challenges in the young adult cancer community. And when you need to start a family in any way other than sort of the traditional way, it's really expensive. Mm. And so our grants cover a pretty wide range of categories and will help really anyone who's between 21 and 39 here in the U.S. who's struggling financially because of cancer. And we're actually, one of the really exciting things is that we're starting to look more at the root cause of some of these financial struggles. So, you know, we'll help people with immediate relief for as long as people need it. But if we can help prevent some of these crises from happening, then it's going to be better for everybody. And so we're doing more along the lines of financial education and financial decision-making to inform people, you know, about their options. For example, we see a lot of people who are struggling with health insurance because when you're in your mid-20s and you get booted off your parents' insurance, you need to go to the marketplace to get coverage. And it's all, I mean, confusing. It's all smoke and mirrors, right? And a lot of times what we'll see is people who are only thinking about the monthly premium. So they're looking at the least expensive option that they can cover on a monthly basis. And they're coming to us for a grant because they're facing bankruptcy because they didn't know their deductible was going to be so high. So in that case, if we could get to them earlier and help them understand the full cost of health insurance, understand how to you know, make sense of the marketplace side and the terminology, then they'll be sort of back in the driver's seat when they're making their decisions and we'll be able to think more sort of longer term about what the consequence that's really so that's sort of the yeah. direction we're heading. It's really exciting. It's like literacy to navigate the the whole picture, so that the the wise decisions now can have better results later. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's a family building component of that too, which is that starting a family, no matter how you do it, is so emotionally intense, right? When you're becoming a parent, and so a lot of times when young adult cancer survivors, for example, are going into an infertility clinic or going to an adoption agency or going into really whatever scenario um, they're going into, the conversation of cost doesn't always come up at first, mm-hmm. you know, because you just want to do whatever you have to do to be a parent. But if we can start sort of making some of those conversations easier from the get-go and encourage people to ask about the total cost, ask about payment options, ask about resources for support, then they're going to be in a financially stronger position. And as we both know, kids are really expensive once they get here. <laughs> so yeah. Yes. together is putting them in a better position once they actually need to feed that child and buy diapers for that child and, and raise that child. Right. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you is something to the effect of, you know, has cancer changed you as a person um, and as a person who would lead others and give to others? Um, and I'm reminded of of something that really spoke to me. Um, my, my experience was not with a, a physical illness, but I lost my dad 10 years ago in, um, in an accident, in a major accident. And I felt I can relate to something that you're saying, which is that I felt like I had such incredible resources around me. And I felt the desire to give back to people that experience any loss or any pain, even if it was just listening. Um, 
And I remember my my rabbi at the time said to me, it was something that really spoke to me. She said, um, when your heart is broken open, God floods in. And God can be anything. To me, God is love. You know, the idea of God is love. And it's to me like with you speaking about what you've gone through and then this desire to create something to help and heal other people is that. So I'm imagining that speaks to you somehow. I felt the need to say it. (laughs) It does. Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I think that we're very lucky to have support when we need it, you know, and in a best, in a perfect world, none of us would go through anything so devastating and so challenging and so life changing in a negative way, you know, and I think the reality is that all of us are in this together and. I think sharing your story just now sort of reinforced my thought earlier that no matter where you come from and what you go through, there are some experiences, sort of human experiences that are very similar. Yeah. And I think we're both very lucky. And I'll also put out a quick disclaimer, (laughs) which, which I always like to do because cancer was the worst thing that ever happened to me. You know, I don't like to sugarcoat that. I, my mom, actually, she and I were talking recently, and she said, you know, we never talk about how terrible cancer was and how afraid you were and how sick you were. And it's it's because I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I don't sure. want to relive a lot of that. But for me, and I have no problem with how anyone else explains their experience or processes through whatever they go through, but for me personally, I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that I'm here and that I survived cancer because I did something better or I did something differently than all of the people that I lost to cancer along the way. And I also don't think there's some reason why I got cancer and other friends and family members didn't. So I think, you know, when I was in the hospital and I was throwing up a zillion times a day and I was taking pills, you know, constantly throughout the day and people came into my hospital room and said, well, don't worry because everything happens for a reason. Like, that did not help me. That that did not help me figure out how to put one front in front of the other. And it right. sort of said to me, well, don't worry about what you're going through right now because it will be okay later. And I needed to worry about what I was going through and I needed to cry. At the same time, and this is why I wanted to kind of put the disclaimer on because I, I want to be real about it. I don't know if we can always find meaning in the experiences that we have, but I think we can make meaning from them. I think that we're sort of dealt this hand in life through whatever means you believe in and we need to play it in the best way that we can. Okay. That gave me, that gave me goosebumps, Sam, because I totally (laughs) agree with you. That's it. You can't necessarily, these things don't always have meaning like in the moment they're happening, but you can make meaning. I think that's Mm -hmm. so, so important to remember for any of us that go through anything that's of a challenge that we can make something meaningful of it, um, which you obviously have. It's incredible. Um, I want to talk a lot about um, actually your personal life, <laughs> but but before we but before we do, um, I wanted to ask. You know, a lot of the Beyond Moms that I know, they also have issues or causes that are close to their heart. And a lot of women um, think about what does it mean to start something like a nonprofit or a fund or or something like that. Um, What would be a couple of kind of short tips that you would give to someone who might find themselves called in that direction? 
So I'll give you the advice I wish I had been given 13 years ago. <laughs> okay. So the first is to really know what you're getting into, um, which I did not. I think I was 25. I saw a need. Nobody else was helping young adults financially after treatment, and I knew from the people in my world at that time that this was a very real need. And so we figured, all right, let's do it. I did not imagine the amount of work it was going to be, the amount of thought it was going to be, and I didn't also realize, or I didn't realize either that my personal experience would only take me so far. Mm -hmm. I think what happens a lot of times is that founders have such good intentions and so much passion and it's so personal and they bank on that. And that's certainly what's going to get people interested. Your passion, I think, definitely comes through when you're talking about a cause that's important to you. But my passion for helping young adult cancer survivors didn't teach me about accounting. And it didn't teach me about marketing and PR. And it didn't teach me about program development and program evaluation. And all of those things are so critically important to running a successful organization. And so my first piece of advice was know what you're getting into and be ready to put in the amount of time and effort. You know, three years into the SAM fund, I went back for my MBA in nonprofit management because I needed a skill set to actually make sure that the SAM fund was going to be around long after people got bored about my story. <laughs> right. And the second thing I would say is do your research and make sure that someone else isn't already doing it. There are a lot of nonprofits in this country, and chances are there's probably a program similar to what you want to do or an organization that already does it that would love your help. And so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. There's no need to compete with anybody else because in the end, when you're competing with a similar organization for donors or you're competing with you know, somebody else for program service delivery, the only ones that are going to suffer at the end of that story are the ones you're trying to help because now they're going to have fewer resources available to them and the strength of each organization gets diluted so make sure there's nobody else out there doing it and if there is or even if there's someone that's doing something similar see if you can get them out see if there's another way that doesn't involve creating a nonprofit from scratch where you can still make the impact you want to make i think that's amazing and huge and and yeah, it's like a profound point on many levels, both in terms of the resources that are supposed to be helping others, as well as your own personal <laughs> energy mm-hmm. and resources. It's amazing. So um, tell us, I want to hear a little bit about uh, being a mom and how that has shifted or assisted your beyond mom dreams of what you're creating and also how you're finding your own balance in the midst of all of this i laugh a little bit at that last point because spoiler alert i still haven't found my balance (laughs) none of us have but i think i think we all agree it's a a daily effort (laughs) absolutely absolutely so i have two kids and I adore them to the ends of the world. My son, Alex, is six, almost six and a half, and my daughter, Emmy, is three and a half, going on 25. She's a three-nager. I actually just heard that term for the first time recently, and it's yeah. genius. It's real. Mm-hmm. It's real. Just wait till it's four-nager. That's what I have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. So, we, so my husband and I had a whole lot of discussions about this very early on because when I went to treatment the first time, my doctor said, well, probably your fertility will be impacted by all the chemo you got, but we won't know for sure. 
And then when I went through chemo and my bone marrow transplant the second time, they said, well, probably your fertility would be impacted by this round of chemo. So you put this together with the earlier one, and probably there's no way you're going to get pregnant. And it was an interesting few years after that because I was in my early 20s. I was single. I was not thinking about being a mom. And this is, you know, I was diagnosed 17 years ago. And so in terms of fertility preservation and a lot of the conversations that are happening in the cancer community now, it was basically the dark ages. I mean, nobody was talking about that. It was still experimental. And I was in a time crunch to start treatment. And so we didn't have any conversations about future families or parenthood or anything like that. And so... What started to happen for me was that as I started to go to cancer conferences and workshops and you know retreats, events, and the conversation, you know, there were usually facilitated workshops on family building, and there was a lot about fertility preservation and IVF and the different assistive technologies available to people who are dealing with infertility. What seemed to happen, and I don't know if this is just in the cancer community, but I know from my experience this was how a lot of our conversations went there was a certain path you were supposed to follow. So you're supposed to try to get pregnant. And if you couldn't get pregnant, then you could try IUI or IVF. And if that didn't work, you could try donor eggs or donor sperm or donor embryos. And if that didn't work, you could try and find a gestational carrier. And if that didn't work, you could always adopt. And there's so many things wrong with that message. And I speak, I think, as more as a cancer survivor than just as an adoptive parent on this front because for anybody feeling like especially on any major life decision like becoming a parent, feeling like the choice isn't actually yours to make is incredibly disempowering. Yeah. And so what what happens as sort of a byproduct of that is that with each step that you take, so if you try IVF and it doesn't work and you decide to look for donor eggs or donor sperm, or if you try that and that doesn't work, each option becomes a little bit less ideal than the one before it, right? right. According to who, though? According to whose ideals? Well, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, there are biological reasons, you know, to sort of go follow a certain path. So I think that there's some validity. If someone wants to have a biological child, then there are, you know, sort of the logical ways to go about it. But if someone wants to become a parent, I think, and it was really important for me, um, that you see all of the options in front of you and pick what fits best. And then you turn the table a little bit and make the whole thing more empowering because then I am in control of the decision that I make for me. And I may still choose to go through all of these different processes and, you know, land wherever I land, but at least I'm in the driver's seat. Right. And someone else could put one thing in front of the other. You could say, well, I want adoption first versus something else later. It's, it actually allows you to have your own mind. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it also just doesn't take into account that there might be physical restrictions on someone, that there might be financial restrictions. You know, I think everyone needs to feel in control of their choices and, and make the one that's best for them. And so I'm very lucky that my husband, I actually have a funny story to tell you. So um, when I first met him, we had been dating, it was maybe four or five months, and we had the conversation. And I figured, okay, it's long enough in that. I actually care what he thinks about this, but not so far in that he can't get out <laughs> if he needs to. Right, right. So I took a deep breath. I remember exactly where we were sitting in my apartment. And I took a deep breath and I said, no, by the way, I don't know that I'm going to be able to have children biologically because of my cancer history. And he didn't even miss a beat. He said, you know what? There are a lot of kids in this world that need a home. And the funny part of that story is that a couple months later, there was a big study that came out about childhood cancer survivors and um, there was new research at the time 
about long-term effects, and one of my doctors was the lead author on the study, and so the New York Times called me for an interview. And in that interview, I told her that story about what Adam said, and it made it into the piece. And so in the New York Times, they quoted my then-boyfriend as saying, there are a lot of kids in the world that need a home. You're (laughs) like, sweetheart, you are trapped here for good, whether you want to be or not. The New York Times (laughs) quoted you. That's so funny. And we're all good. Uh, But it was was very funny. But I was very lucky that he left it to me to decide. He was like, listen, if you go through any sort of IVF or anything like that, it's on your body. And, you know, you need to decide how you want to go about this. And, you know, we met with infertility specialists at the same time as we were meeting with adoption agencies. Ended up deciding for a number of reasons that adoption was the right fit for us. And both my kids actually were born um, right in Boston, where I live. Wow. It was a funny twist of fate, but Alex is now six. We adopted him when he was four days old, and Emmy is now three and a half. We adopted her at birth, too. And, you know, for any fears that I had about, it's, it's actually funny, I had fears about, you know, how will I feel connected to a child that I adopted and how, you know, how does this whole thing work? What I realized was that a lot of that was just fears about parenting, like about taking full responsibility for another human being yeah. and feeling that unconditional bond that people talk about, but you can't understand until you experience it. Right. It had nothing to do with adoption. <laughs> right. Being a for the first time. Whenever women ask me about um, about birth and that they're scared, I'm like, oh, don't be scared of that. <laughs> be scared of <laughs> everything else that happens after. <laughs> and really, anyone experiences that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I I love that story, Sam, and and thank you for sharing it because motherhood is not one thing; it's many things, and it's such a universal experience. And um, I think it's really important that this other version is told and told with so much love and openness. And it's yeah, I I love that you're sharing that with us. Thank you. So one of the things that I thought was so important um, that didn't happen in my story, and so if I can share it with anyone, I will, was that for all the times that my doctors and my care team said, well, you're probably not going to be able to have kids, what they should have said was, and I told them this too, what they should have said was, if you want to be a parent, you'll be a parent. You might not be able to do it in the way you anticipated, and you know, certain options might be off the table, but... You know, I think they came at it from a very biological, medical point of view because that's what they do best and yeah. they should. Yeah. There needs to be another conversation around motherhood. And I think, you know, and about parenthood, there are options. They're not easy. They're expensive. They, you know, are not necessarily what anyone envisions when they're younger, but they're doable. Yeah. And in the end, it's about being a parent. I think, you know, it's interesting as I realized I didn't fully answer your question before, but. I think it's, it's interesting as a mom now that cancer becomes the background to my story that I have so much in common with moms having nothing to do with my illness history or about my adoption story or about where their kids came from because really until someone shares their story, you don't know. And in the end, we bond because we are moms. And it's a very sort of liberating, normalizing experience for me because I focused on my cancer for so many years and now I have a much more important role to play. It's an amazing role. And I agree with you. I mean, because with everything that I do, I'm completely 
um, driven by the community experience of motherhood, not the um, not the caddy part, clearly, because I could care less about that, but like about the power behind women, you know, who um, are connected by something so deep and so soulful. And then you add on the layer of women who also want to do other really cool, interesting things in their mm-hmm. life. And it's quite the mixture. Tell us how you find balance, even if it's just minute to minute in your I day. Try. I try. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I strive for, and I do it better at some times than others, to be totally honest. There are some times I don't do this nearly as well as I want, but having a family made me better at my job because before kids, I worked all the time. I worked from home, and so I could work at 11 o'clock at night, and I could work on weekends, and if something needed to get done, I did it. And when Alex was born... I needed to get home in time to let the nanny go home. I needed to pick him up from daycare when he was a little older. Or, you know, I needed to be present with him. And it forced me, you know, especially once I moved my work out of my house and actually had an office, it forced me to close the door at 5 o'clock and be done until the next day, which made me a whole lot more efficient for the 8 or 9 hours when I was there. You know, so I had more balance when they were younger, I think. Um, But now it... It's hard because there's so much that I want to do in my job and at my, you know, in the work that we're doing and so many people that need our help that sometimes I do need to check email, you know, at 7 or 8 o'clock at night or I do need to do something on a weekend. I travel a lot for work. And what I try and do, and this is the thing that I do better sometimes than others, but I try and put my phone away or shut it off or leave it in my car when I get home until they go to sleep because I see them so little during the day. You know, I mean, they're up actually really, really early. So we have some quality time in the morning before the sun comes up. But they're in school early and I'm at work early. And, you know, I pick them up in time for dinner and a tub and a little bit of playing and some books and that's it. You know, it's such a short window. And so I try and really be present for those two or three hours when we're all together in the evening. Um, And I think as far as personal balance, there's a brief window of time. This might sound ridiculous, but maybe you understand. There's a brief moment, about 15 minutes, from when I drop my kids off at school as I'm on my way to the train. There's a 15-minute window where I have no cell signal. And that's sort of my, my time. You know, it's short, but it's valuable because I can't be on the phone, and I don't have kids in the car. And my brain is going, but it's the only opportunity that I really have to slow my brain down. And similarly, when I'm on my way home at the end of the day, I have that 15-minute window as well. And I think, you know, I try and make time. And I think this is the thing that's hard about being a working mom especially is that, you know, between work and being a mom, there's so little extra time for anything. But I try and carve out time, even if it's once or twice a week. I got into bar classes because it's one of the few sort of low-impact, <laughs> yeah. you know, strengthening things I can do. Oh, my God, it kills me. Yeah, I'm going to my first one in- about three weeks this weekend, and I'm terrified. But for that hour, I mean, I need to concentrate or else I will fall on my face, literally. And it's so good to check out mentally for an hour. And I think the part that I'm still striving for is to make that effort, even if it's once or twice a week, to carve out that time in the schedule that's just about me. Because if I can do that, it makes me better in the whole rest of the day. Yeah. It's so it's, you have to readjust your expectations, but really maximize the moments you have. And I think that's what you're saying. Um, Sam, I mean, 
I just I feel like I could talk to you for a very long time um, and share so much more. Um, but in the interest of time for this this discussion, I think the next most important thing is that you tell our listeners um, how they can get involved in the SAM Fund, um, how they can give either time or resources, and where to follow you as you continue creating this very, very special organization. Well, thanks for the opportunity to do that. So we always need volunteers. We always need donations. We always need people continuing that conversation that cancer isn't free. That's our tagline. Um, that even when you're cancer free, it can still be very, very challenging and very expensive. So we need people to champion our cause in their community or, you know, at the very least, making sure that if they know a young adult who's been impacted by cancer, they, they tell them about us so that we can help support them. So best way is really on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter. LinkedIn, Instagram, um, we're on YouTube. All of the names except for YouTube are just at the SAM Fund. Um, sometimes it's one word, sometimes it's two, but S-A-M-F-U-N-D. On YouTube, um, our page is, the, um, oh my goodness, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing, SAM Fund TV. And so we have a bunch of video content on there. We actually have an event coming up in New York on June 29th. It's our 12th annual comedy night event, which it's just, it gets more and more fun every single year that we do it. And it's at Broadway Comedy Club. There's information on our website. We'd love to see everybody come out for that. It's a fun night away from the kids because it's 21 plus. Um, but it's always a lot, a lot of fun. And we're always looking for volunteers who can host an event in your area or, you know, let their local hospital or cancer center know that we're here. And, you know, there are a lot of ways that we can engage with volunteers. Um, and certainly donations are appreciated at any time, big or small, because the as I was telling you in the beginning, a lot of times people are in such crisis that they're skipping their medications because they can't afford a copay. You know, they're skipping their appointments because they're so embarrassed by their bills. And so $10 or $20 or $50 can really mean the difference for somebody between getting care and not getting care. And so at any level, you know, donations are appreciated. That's great. Sam, you are such an inspiration, and I really appreciate the honest storytelling and truth-telling and sharing new ways of thinking not only about cancer, about care, about motherhood. Um, it's all the things that um, I think could really will, – will definitely inspire those that are listening to this. Um, so thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so – it's so great, I think, for me personally to be able to talk about things other than cancer, you know, sometimes. And to, I mean, I think my my cancer story plays a role to a certain point, honestly, because of what I do professionally. But to be able to talk to new people like you and engage with new communities, like a community of moms, um, I just love it. I think it's so telling that, you know, Again, no matter where we come from, we're all in this together. And there's so much that I learned from the moms in my life and the friends who are moms. And, you know, if, if any part of my story helps to inspire somebody else to, to do something or to take control over something in their life um, in a new way, then I'm so happy to share it. And so I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Thanks, Randy. Thank you, Sam. And thank you for listening to the On Air with Beyond Mom podcast. Hopefully you will be 
totally floored and excited by this conversation and you'll want to listen to all the other ones. There's some really, really great, great women here with so much insight to offer. So click and listen, take it with you on the go and enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. And until next time, have a great day.